Good morning. How's your weekend? We don't have time for that now. <laughs> Got to move on. Welcome to Portico Church. Uh, my name's Jason. It's my privilege to welcome you here and open up the Word of God with you today. We're in Mark chapter 11, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bible, and I hope you do, go ahead and open it up. We'll be walking through that. If you need a Bible, we have some in the back. Um, we would love for you to take one of those home today. Um, who do you say that Jesus is? We have attached so much to the God-man that doesn't belong to him. Some of it's cultural expectations. Some of it's maybe the stories we heard or we assumed. But you're not alone. When Jesus shows up on the scene, they understand what he says for the most part. But they do not understand him at all. So we're going to understand that. That's, that's our goal with this series. Um, being surprised and having your expectations dashed, if you've been alive more than a few days, is not foreign to you. Um, but I will say this. I just experienced something this last week that changed my world. Same day delivery. You ever had that before? <laughs> I didn't believe it. I'd heard it. I'd, I experienced it. I didn't even want it. I just ordered something and it came that day. It got to my house before I got home from work and it was amazing. I can't wait for the drones to show up. Um, and they say, as a little research, that the average person gets one box a day on your house, right? A lot, most of them are from Amazon, but you get, isn't that great? So now this is good. I love this, but now I find it unacceptable to wait for anything. So I'm spoiled and a brat evermore. Um, I have a really good friend of mine who drives for the big brown UPS. And he was saying to me that as he's delivering, a lot of times people will be like up on their windows looking for him. It's kind of creepy uh, for them to show up. And you know, this is the longing. This is the expectation that we have. The problem is, this is how that works when you don't get what you want. You hear the truck because it's a weird sound. Dogs can pick up at like 10 miles away. But you hear that truck coming. You get up. You have this exhilaration, and they park in front of your house, right? You get this rush, like, oh, I'm going to get it, I'm going to get it. The driver gets out, gets a box, and walks across the street to your neighbor's house, and then he's gone. So that exhilaration and that rush turns to rage, and then just deep, deep despair, like it's not coming today. Um, that's basically what we're getting in this gospel today. We're getting an expectation that is so wrapped around who the king will be, how God will save, that there's first exhilaration, then there's confusion, then there's rage, and then there's a deep, deep despair for everybody. Jesus' disciples, Jerusalem at large, everybody. This is the dynamic that is at work in Mark's gospel. Now, last week, Pastor Steve Reed got us kicked off by not really necessarily introducing us to the whole series. We start by getting introduced to Jesus. We see that he's the king that we really don't want. He's the crucified king. And he says things that we don't like, such as, if you're going to follow me, you're going to have to not find your life in anything else but me. Because if you will find your life, you're going to lose it everywhere else. In fact, you will suffer for my namesake and for the gospel. So that's kind of the paradigm. That's the, the lens at which we're looking at this today. So um, before I even read the text, 
I want to do just a little bit of a series intro here so that we can get a flavor, if we can get an idea of what we're getting ourselves into. This book is written by John Mark. Uh, if you remember when we did Acts, John Mark was kind of this... I'm, He's kind of a punk, honestly. He traveled with Paul and with Barnabas and caused a fight with both of them. Do you remember that? He might have been related to Barnabas. We don't know. But he wanted to go with them, and then he ends up abandoning them, probably because it was too hard. So he rolls back into Jerusalem. He picks up later uh, and heads out, but he's somebody that you wouldn't expect God to use to write his word. But he traveled. He'd been around in the whole area. His audience, therefore, is basically the church at large. So this is not like an epistle that Paul would write where it's lasered in on one thing or like a problem that the church is experiencing. This has a much more global feel to it. And this is an intense book. So this, this is sometimes they would call it the lion gospel. It's intense. It's quick. He doesn't play around with words like maybe the Gospel of Luke does. It's not, he just comes at you with it. It's almost abrupt in the way that he writes. And he's giving us an account of Jesus' life with one question that drives the whole book. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah or not? That's it. That's how he opens the book. That's how he closes the book. It's quick, it comes fast, and he wants that to be answered for everyone. Is Jesus the Jewish Messiah or not? So what is that? Um, we say this a lot, but let's understand what the Messiah means. Because if we don't understand what it meant to Mark, to John Mark, and to Jesus and his followers, we're not going to understand it at all. So Messiah. The term Messiah um, is, the Greek word is Christos, sounds like Christ. So the idea is there's an anointed well, let's just go back to Old Testament for a minute. The stories and the writings were that there is a king that will come forward from God. And this king will show up, this Messiah, and he will usher in the kingdom of God on earth. So much so that he will remove everything that stands in between God and his people. So this is who the Messiah is, and he's going to bring God's kingdom on earth. This royal figure, sometimes called the Son of God. So that's what the Messiah is. This is, this is how they understand Messiah, because this is what Old Testament teaches. It doesn't really expand on that much. So you can see how there can be a misunderstanding. And here's the situation. Here's the scene in first century Jerusalem. Um, it's not good. Israel is under Roman occupation. In fact, Israel has not had a good run of it. They're back in the Holy Land, but so is everybody else. And right now, Greek had, Greece has owned it. The Persians had owned it. Right now, Rome has their grip on the Holy Land. And they are not fun to live with in this time. So the obvious expectation, if you are a follower of God, was that when this Messiah shows up, payback's coming. And it's long overdue. Some of these Roman generals that rolled in, like Pompey, thousands and thousands of Jews died. So if you hear whispers, hey, there's one coming. We don't know where he came from, but we think he's the Messiah. The prophets are saying, those, like the scribes are saying, this could be the one. This could be the Messiah. So that's the whispers. But Jesus wasn't having it. He, 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 when he would go out and heal, like, Shh, don't tell nobody. This happens all over Mark, the first eight chapters. He heals somebody, does a miracle, sh- sh- he'd roll out, he'd get away. They call it the messianic secret. Why is he doing this? Here's why. He knows the scriptures. 
He understands who he is. He has got to recalibrate everyone's idea of Messiah or it's never going to happen. He knows what he's up against and he's busy waiting, waiting, waiting. Because here's what he's bringing. He's bringing new exodus. He's going to bring his people through the waters of judgment, forgiveness of sins. He himself is going to open the way to the temple. It's not going to be in Jerusalem. He himself is going to open a way. There's going to be forgiveness of sin, pouring out the spirit of God that God would reside in his people. And there's new creation. The heavenly Jerusalem coming down out of heaven, like we see in Revelation 21, to dwell. God dwelling with man. This is where he's taking them. So the gospel of Mark is basically one big passion narrative, like most gospels. With, with an introduction, but it's one big long. It centers on the last week of Jesus' life. And that's where we're going to go. And honestly, if you want to get to know somebody, and if you're, just, if you're trying to figure out what Christianity is or this whole Jesus thing is, this is a good series to jump into. And here's why. If you want to know somebody, get them at their worst and get them at their best. Learn the stories that have formed them, and you're going to see it all right here with Jesus. This is his best week ever and his worst week ever, completely misunderstood and worshipped in the same week. So this is where we're going. Um, we're going to basically walk through the last six days of Jesus' life. So this is weird because normally the sermon we do today is Palm Sunday. So just work with me on this. We're going to take every day and walk through it for the most part in some key events in Jesus' life so that you and I will be able to answer this question differently. Who do you say that I am? It's funny. Peter says it right. You are the Christ. But he doesn't understand what it means. And then at the very end of the book, a Roman centurion says something of Jesus. Between Peter's confession and this Roman centurion's confession, a lot of stuff happens. We need to see it. So here's what I want you to do. Here's, what, here's my hope for this series. One is this. I want you to understand what this week was like. I want you to know what this week felt like for Jesus, for his disciples, for Rome, for the government, for those that were following God. I want you to know what it felt like for them, what was going through their head, why this was difficult. Again, there was exhilaration. There was confusion. There was rage. There was rejection. What they believed that they needed, honestly, did not get delivered the way they expected it to. So understand that. And for Jesus, man, Watch this. Each day, the weight of the cross gets heavier on him. You can see it. I'm going to use a Lord of the Rings reference, even though Pastor Steve Reed's kind of claimed that. Do you remember how Frodo, he's getting close to Mordor? And like, as he's getting closer, he just kind of like the weight of the ring. It's just taking him over. Jesus feels this. If you've ever wondered if Jesus is fully man, you're going to get it here. He's walking into something that he doesn't, he doesn't, he's never experienced it. So the way the cross gets heavier. So understand what this week felt like for everybody and also be, be able to answer this question very differently. Who do you say that I am? I want you to know Jesus better. I want you to deconstruct the Jesus you've built and listen to the Jesus that is in this gospel. So let's go there. Mark 11, 1 through 11. This is your Palm Sunday text. We're coming in real early. Uh, it's, it's, it's his triumphal entry. All right, here we go. 
Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord has need of it and will send it back here immediately. And they went away and found a colt tied at a door outside in the street, and they untied it. And some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing, untying the colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut from the fields. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Dearly Father, we come to you in submission, in great need, in joy. That even now, Jesus, you intercede for us. We ask, Lord, that you would illuminate us, that you would open up your word for us, that we might behold its treasure. Jesus, we need it. That you would help us to understand how to answer this question. Who do you say that I am? So we give this time to you. We ask you to fill us with your spirit. In the name of Jesus, amen. Jesus is a promised king. You see it. There's no way to read this and not understand. Oh, he's the one. So Jesus is a few things here. First, he's the promised king. Not just that. He's present in a way that is God with us. He's present with them, and that causes things to happen around him. And he's personal. He's not telling people what to do. Well, he did. He said, go get me a horse. But He himself walks into the temple. Huge. So we're going to walk through what this means that Jesus is king. He's the promised king. He's the present king. And he's also the personal king. And in in the bigger view, he's the promise. He's the promise that walks in on behalf of God and brings God's promises. So what's happening here in this text? Well, over the past three years, Jesus has been, for the most part, north of Jerusalem. His ministry has started. Uh, He's been baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. He's called his disciples forward. He's taught them. He's trained them. He's given them authority. He's been exercising um, his ministry in teaching. He's been showing up in synagogues, helping them understand scripture. He's also been doing miracles. He's been doing things that the Old Testament, especially Isaiah, said that the Messiah would do. And his miracles are very specific. He has command over nature. He has command over death and sickness. And he has command over evil. All things that the Messiah would have. So this has been rolling out. Now, just recently, and a few days ago, he was in Jericho and he healed, um, well, who did he heal? Lazarus. How do I forget that one? Okay. So he heals Lazarus. And many commentators will say, hey, when he did that, he basically... He, he's, he committed suicide. By doing this, 
he confused and just stirred up a hornet's nest, especially with religious leaders. So he, he brings Lazarus back to life, showing that he has power over death. And then recently, just before we get here in Mark, he heals a man, a man named Bartimaeus. And he was blind. And Bartimaeus says something very, very clear. Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus heals him. And that's how we get to here. So that's what's been happening. But what are they doing? Why is everybody going to Jerusalem? This is Passover. Three big holidays in Judaism. Passover is one of the biggest. This was, this was huge groups of people, all the villages emptying, coming into Jerusalem. You would travel with packs of people, with family, with friends that you haven't seen for months, maybe years. You're all going together. It's Passover. So the idea is we are celebrating victory. We are celebrating freedom. We are celebrating the fact that God delivered us out of the house of bondage, out of the hand of Pharaoh. There would be meals. There would be prayers. There would be dancing. They would recite um, Psalm 18.25, Hosanna. Right? They are blessing God. They are expecting God to show up and meet them. And Jesus is going in with them. He's with his disciples going into Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And the buzz is this. We think this is the Christ. They didn't have social media, but news still traveled quickly. It was a dense area. A lot of people. Hey, he's, he's the one who brought Lazarus back to, to life. And we know he was dead. We were at his funeral. But you can talk to him now. He's the Christ. Hey, he just, he, just, he just healed Bartimaeus. Go talk to him. Go back there and talk to him. You can, you can, see, you can see now. So the buzz is, this is the one. This is the one. So Jesus goes public. Look at this map. This is where they're coming. From Bethany around the Mount of Olives, right into the temple. This is not a fun journey. You, you, it's a huge climb to get around the Mount of Olives, still is today. But when you come around the north side, you're lined up with the temple, and the temple's at about 3,000 feet, and you're at about 2,700 feet, and you can see it. So Jesus, they're coming around. As the temple comes into sight, he brings this to his disciples. You guys go into the village, get me a horse, get me a colt. What's going on here? Well, the text says, go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied in which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. This is not a random request. Jesus is not tired. He's a carpenter by trade, right? This is prophecy fulfilled. Our call to worship is being fulfilled by Jesus. 500 years earlier, the prophet Zechariah had said this, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, on the foal of a donkey. This is royalty language. Not so much in the present day, do you ride a donkey to indicate your royalty? Not even in Jesus' day. That was more of a horse. But in Zechariah's day, in Solomon's day, in David's day, the king's coronation would usually include riding on an animal that was a mule. And he would go in and take his throne. And Zechariah prophesied 
that the king will come into Jerusalem riding on the fall of a colt. So this is kingly language. And also, the, I want you to notice this, because a lot of, I, this just blows my mind. Anybody, any cowboys here? Any cowboys or cowgirls? Anybody? Horses? Who has a horse? Anybody? What's wrong with you people? You all city suckers? Somebody in the back does. Is there, is there something weird about this? There's a lot of things weird about this. Something weird about this? Unbroken? Colt, full of a colt? You don't ride those. You can try. Yippee-ki-yay. Good luck. You do not ride an unbroken offspring. It does not gonna ha- it's not going to happen. So Jesus is like, go get it, bring it to me. And it's, he has complete calm command over this animal. New creation. When this king comes, he's got control. He's got control of his creation. It's in there. It's in there. So is he humble or is he kingly? Well, Zechariah says he comes in humbly. Hold that thought for a minute. Here's what humble would have been. Oh, no, I don't need a colt. I'll just walk. Oh, no, no, Hosanna. I'm, no, no. That's not me. Humble is how he was before. Shh, tell nobody. He doesn't stop the praise. He understands Zechariah. He knows that Solomon rode into Jerusalem on a colt. Oh, he knows exactly who he is. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's riding into Jerusalem as the promised king. He's coming into full sight, and he's receiving praise. He is claiming kingship. If you're going to understand this verse, if we're going to understand what it means that he rides into Jerusalem this way, you need to see it how they saw it. It was clear to them, oh, this is, this is the king. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. This is the promised one. He's claiming kingship. He's no longer keeping his identity secret. He is the long-awaited promised king. This is like here in the UPS truck. Oh, it's coming. I, I know what happens next. Everybody knows what happens, what's happened next. So they're waiting for him, and here he comes. Humble, yes, in this way. He's God. God the Son does not need to ride into Jerusalem on anything. Humble in this way, yes. He's humbled himself to take on flesh. He's written himself into the story of mankind. He's going in to become the Passover lamb, not to just participate in the Passover. He's bringing a new one. So yes, this is the promised king. But now he's present. This is where the trouble starts. So why were the crowds singing Hosanna? Why were they waving branches, probably palm branches, and why were they laying their cloaks down? Have you ever done that? We don't do that today, usually, unless it's a religious service. So what are they doing? Verse 9, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Hosanna in the highest. And this is a pilgrim psalm. This is something that they would use to be singing as they made their way to the temple. Hosanna. You know what it means? Save us now. Now would be a good time to show up. Our trust is in you. This is an ancient pilgrim psalm. Hosanna. They were probably call and response 
Some people even think the people in front of him would call and respond to the people behind him. It sounds awesome, actually. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. We know God's promise. We know that in 2 Samuel 7, 13, that we're to understand that David's king is eternal. His kingship, his throne does not leave his family. Is this the one? Hosanna in the highest. It's also a greeting. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. This was a greeting that you would have given to everyone during Passover, especially as you're going into the temple area. But they are definitely aiming these at Jesus. God be praised. God be praised. We say that, don't we? Especially in church circles. Sometimes when we come to church, we'll say things like praise the Lord. Like somebody tells you something, oh, that's really good, praise the Lord. It's common vernacular in here. But when you say it, are you getting the sense that the person that's saying to you actually believes that God is present here? This is what they're seeing. This is how they're using their terminology. Um, over in India, I know one word, one Donalu. I probably said it wrong, but it means praise the Lord. And they use it incessantly. And you get the sense from them that when they say it, it's more than a greeting. They expect God to save. This is where the crowd's going. He's raised Lazarus. He's the real deal. Let's go praise God. Our Messiah is here. The king is here. See, when you celebrate victory, past victory and liberation and freedom, it makes you want more of it doesn't really work out in Washington sports scene, right? But, ha ha. (laughs) Just kidding, it's going to work out. When you celebrate something, when you look backwards and you're like, yes, you want more of it. You taste it. You want more. This is where they were. So are they worshiping Jesus or not? I don't know. When they say Hosanna in the highest, blessed is he... Are they, I don't know. I'll tell you that Peter said, you are the Christ, but then said, oh, you're not going to suffer. Why would, why would the Messiah come to suffer? We're the ones who are suffering. You need to go do something. So he, if his disciples who were with him for three years didn't get it, I, I just don't think they got it. They were exhilarated that God had sent one. And yes, I believe there's worship, but maybe not the worship. They, they weren't worshiping as King Jesus. They were not worshiping as the sin-bearing Savior. They weren't worshiping him as the one who is the eternal king. In fact, some of these voices, you can be sure, on Friday, were saying, crucify him. Yeah, we thought he was somebody. He's nothing. He's bleeding before Pilate. Good grief. Yay, Messiah. I don't know if they're worshiping him. A couple hundred years earlier, Judas Maccabeus wrote in Jerusalem. He was a a Jewish revolutionary. They did the same thing. Palm branches. Praise. Why? Why would they cry out, crucify him, if they believe he's the Christ? Because they didn't get what they expected. God did not show up in the way that they believed he would. Let me just ask you this. Um, 
how much of your spiritual life today, what you would call your worship of God, depends on this, having your immediate needs met. Just be honest for a minute. How much of your closeness with God, your feeling of closeness, vibrant worship, your prayer life, reading the word of God, even coming to church, how much of that is dependent on you having your immediate needs met? It's just an honest question, and it's not even a trick question. Nobody in the Bible is better than us. Nobody's worse than us. They're, they're seeing God and going, what? You, 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 hooray, you came. But have you seen anything that's been going on down here? If you're the Christ, do something. This is where Jesus becomes a personal king. Um. Let me ask you a question. When you, when you go on vacation, and I know you guys vacation, when you do that, let's say that you're going to your favorite city. Let's say, for instance, it's Paris. Thought experiment. Where would you go first when you got there? Anybody? Did somebody say the Louvre? Okay. Anybody else? The Eiffel Tower. Okay, that's good. That's a good one. Anybody else? Am I the only one who would eat first? <laughs> Thank you. All right. Hey, where you go first when you show up in a city that you're visiting, sh- that you just showed your agenda, friend. If I go to Paris, you, you can go to the Eiffel Tower. You can go to the Louvre. I'm going to go eat for a long time and many times after that. So where you go first when you're on vacation, when you're doing something that you have been anticipating for a long time, kind of shows the cards that you're playing. It kind of shows your agenda on vacation. Watch Jesus here. Where he goes first... Well, by the way, this is why vacation groups never works. I'm just going to tell you that. Um, I don't want to vacation with you because I don't want to go where you want to go. Um, look what Jesus does right off the bat. When he shows up in Jerusalem, where does he go? He goes to the temple. And he, Jesus, entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he'd looked around, this is weird, at everything, as it was late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So most people did not stay in Jerusalem. There was a lot of people there during Passover. So you probably couldn't even stay there. They're going back out to stay in a village. But before he does that, he shows up in the temple. He takes a look around. It's very ominous, honestly. Then he rolls out. So notice this. Notice what doesn't happen and where Jesus doesn't go. Remember, he's the Christ. He's the Messiah. He's the promised king of Israel. He's the one who's, who's promised from David's line to hold the throne, to overcome Israel's enemies, to remove everything that stands between God and his people. He's that one. He doesn't go to Pilate. He doesn't show up to the one who actually has power to either A, check out the competition or to broker a peace deal. No, nah, not going to do it. He doesn't go to Pilate. And no worship happens. Check this. God shows up in the temple. Cricket, cricket. This is the condition. This is why Jesus comes. 
He goes straight to the temple personally. And the temple is everything to Israel, and rightfully so. It's where God meets his people. It's where he places his name, his presence. It's where he provides for his people. Some things that happen in the temple, forgiveness, ongoing forgiveness, which creates an ongoing fellowship between God and his people. It gives them a future, and it is their freedom. Not to mention, it's their national pride. As long as we have our temple, we have our God, we're good. We can handle anything. Jesus walks in. God the Son walks in, goes straight to the temple. Nothing happens. He basically says, I'll be back. He looks around and he moves out. And when we get to Monday, which is next Sunday, things do not go well. Listen, here's how he's personal. Here's how he's a personal king. He's not an emissary of God. He's not coming on behalf of God necessarily. He's not a messenger. He's not just that. This is God the Son, second person of the Trinity, creator of heaven and earth. He walks into Jerusalem. He goes right to the temple. This is the center of worship. This is where God meets his people. They praise him on the way. They miss him in the temple. And Jesus is bringing both judgment and blessing to his people. Listen. Who do you say that Jesus is? Jesus, the king, came to remove everything that stands between you and human flourishing. You and having a true relationship, trust with God the Father. He comes to do that. And he doesn't do it by telling you what to do. He comes and he bears the curse that your sin has earned you. Would you help me understand what, what kind of a leader does that, let alone a king? You're not going to find one. What king gets off of the throne, walks into the place of his rejection, and for you personally, personally, earns favor, Right? exercises the power of his throne to save us, to save you, that you will never be rejected. His work, not yours. What kind of a king does that? This is a king you worship. This is a king that deserves Hosanna in the highest. They got the words right. They didn't understand him. Who could? Would you have understood him? A lot of times people say, oh, I always wish I was in the Bible times because I would have known Jesus. No, you wouldn't have. Only by the grace of God do you know Jesus. You might have been singing Hosanna and you might have said, nah, crucify him on Friday. You don't know that. Be careful. So how do we respond to a king like this? Joy. Man, you need to have repentance and submission. This is what he's asking. This is what he deserves in worship. This is how we respond as his people. Worship. So what gets in the way of that? Well, we're back to this again. How do you respond when your greatest need and your greatest expectation goes unmet? Let me tell you some of the ways you can respond. You will, you will actually believe that you need healing more than the healer. You will believe that justice, both in your life and others, is more important than the just judge. 
who believe that your freedom in whatever is more important than the Redeemer. You will worship the gift and you will miss the giver. That's what happens when Jesus is not your king. So who do you say that I am? Jesus' words. Here's who he could be to you. Invisible friend? No. Advisor? No. Concierge? Let's be honest here. Consultant? We're in a consultant culture. Is Jesus on my team? But, oh, teacher, cheerleader? Here's how you know if Jesus is your king. When his word brings conflict into your life, what do you do about it? You back off a little bit. Is Hosanna in the highest become dry words now? Jesus is the promised king. He's present. He's personal, but is he your king? Is he your king? This, this is what Mark wants us to know. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, is he your king? Are you curious? Is he your advisor? Is he a friend? Or is he your king? Do you believe, his, does, do his words abide in you? When he says that you belong to him, do you believe it? Do you take things past the cross and hold on to him and live in shame? Well, you can't do that and let Jesus be king. Do you let go of his words when they don't line up with what you want from life? You can't be your king. Worship him. Because if, if he's not your king, he's going to tell you that you're in bondage. He's the only, that's the only path of freedom. So who do you say that Jesus is? Let him be your king. Pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much. As I read this word, Lord, it, it shakes me. I can hear my voice praising you, and I can hear my voice cursing you. Jesus, I pray that we have such a clear vision of who you are as the Messiah, as the one who removes sin, the greatest need that we have is for you to, to overcome and move us from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There's nothing is greater than that need. I pray that in this, Lord, we will see you, we will joyfully submit to you, we will worship you, Lord, and that we will believe and understand even in the worst of times, as we suffer, Lord, nothing can separate us from you and from your plan for us. Nothing. It's impossible as we walk in faith. Impossible. Jesus, help us to see that and to believe it and to joyfully submit to you as king. In the name of Christ, we pray this. Amen.